What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Josh. Gary and Diane are wonderful. Uh, it's been a joy to be able to uh, walk with you and to enjoy life with you in this season. And uh, I haven't heard of one person that has said that they have that everybody enjoys you, uh, and your parties are great. Uh, um, they're wonderful. Would you uh, join in prayer with me? Lord, it is good to be together. It is good to sing together. It is good to greet one another. And it is good to consider your word together. Lord, we recognize that we live in the midst of a broken world where we once counted ourselves among their Fellowship, sinners, enemies, godless. But by your grace, by your love, it's been demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus, you have saved us. And so now we peer into things that which, uh, on one hand, the world will reject, we hold true to deeply. The power of your word, the power of your son, Jesus Christ, can transform a 40-year-old man, four-year-old, and give him life. And Lord, as we look into this, Lord, I pray that uh, we would recognize what you have saved us from and for, so that we might cherish the days that we live ahead of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Citizens of the kingdom of God do not live in sin. Citizens of the, of, of the kingdom of God do not live in sin. Dead men don't live in sin. I don't know how many other ways that you have to say it, but the relationship we have after Christ totally transforms us. Well, at least it ought to. What I find interesting, and we've gone through now five chapters of the book of Romans, is that the letter of Romans does not end at chapter 5, verse 21. Yet, 
so many times it's treated this way. The gospel is not merely about escaping the wrath of God. In fact, so often it is treated as this opportunity to escape what lies ahead of us and to treat the gospel as merely fire insurance. Reality is this. I have stood at many evangelistic events. Creation Fest isn't one of them. I've heard at others as well. Incredible, amazing gospel presentations. And if you're familiar with the season that I grew up, there's a moment in a gospel presentation where the heads go down, eyes are closed, and you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel by slipping a hand up. I have served on many prayer teams who gets the privilege to stand at the back and to look over the the crowd to see who's responding. I have seen many hands go up. And I have seen many in the moment respond to the gospel. Quite frankly, after every event, I've yet still wondered to this day how many of those hands that went up understood and inwardly were transformed by the power of God as they made their way back home. Let me explain. Jesus warned that treating the gospel merely as saving us from hell or his wrath, that there would be those upon hearing its great truth that we'd be saved from the wrath of God, would receive it with incredible joy at this realization. And in Matthew 13, what he would also say then, there are many who receive it with great joy, yet only temporarily. For when they make it back, when affliction or persecution arises because of problems in the world, immediately they will fall away. Yet there are others who will receive, literally consider the gospel and receive it with joy. And yet as they go back, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth will choke them and they will become unfruitful. Yet in the parable of the sower, there is one who receives the word, who understands the word, and as a result of it, bears fruit. The gospel in the letter of Romans does not end at Romans 5, verse 21. The gospel saves us from the wrath of God, but it also saves us for something. Alliance, I need you to consider this. Because it is a problem that is faced within our society to merely treat the gospel as something that saves us from and not for We're going to labor now for another six chapters as Paul articulates what you have been saved for. And yet it has been a common tradition now to merely just get you to understand what you're saved from. The gospel, the power of God is demonstrated for all who might believe that he might save you from his wrath and transform you into the very image of Christ. 
And that is the power of the gospel. And this is what Paul is really excited about to proclaim. But you don't get there until you understand where you're from. So we have these two extremes that we can walk in. One, Romans 1 through 5 demonstrates that we're all sinners. We're helpless, godless, enemies of God. And I know that I live in a world that will hear Romans 1 through 5 and they'll say, I don't like that. So let's get rid of that and let's start at chapter 6. Because 6 is practical. And as you move through chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you see a morality within the kingdom that's very attractive. And so you ignore chapters 1 through 5 only to get to the good stuff. You do not get to the good stuff unless you receive our condition in the first parts of the letter of Romans. So there's... On one hand, those of us who might present the gospel only as one through five, being saved from the wrath of God while ignore the rest of the letter, where there's the other extreme, where we don't want to receive who we really are and just to receive the second half of the letter. You must understand the gospel, what it saves you from and what it saves you for. So just as a reminder of review, Paul did not end his letter at Romans 5.21. We are sinners, each of us, whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, each of us lives under sin. No one will plead their innocence, for all have sinned, as Romans 3.23 has already taught us, have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, as we saw last week, there are two men who have greatly impacted the world in profound ways. It was Adam who transgressed against God and through him sin entered the world and as a result of his sin, death has spread throughout all humanity. You either follow the lineage of Adam or you follow the lineage of Christ who has come with grace and has conquered death and redeemed us from the problems of this world, uniting us back in a right relationship with God. And Paul asks a question as he makes his transition now. Look with me in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He asks a question, and I just want to ask before we even get to our points. And I have to ask the question, why is the question here? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? No doubt, all throughout church history, Christians have asked the question, What is our relationship to sin after entering into a relationship with Christ? And Paul has to ask this question primarily because he's forced it himself. If you bear with me, why has he forced this question? Well, one, early in the church and still presently today, people have had a hard time with where is sin, where is sin and its relationship to Christians, but within a Jewish community, they often ask the relationship with the law as it relates to the church. And he has had throughout this whole letter, had to remind the church the purpose of the law. And this is what prompts his question. The law, one, just as a matter of review, the law, Mosaic law, what did it do? It silenced everyone before God. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, he speaks to those who are under the law. With what intent? So that every mouth 
may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Two, he reminded the churches that the law was what the law could not justify. It could not make one right before God, but rather it revealed our sinfulness. And so in verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, I know I'm building up to this question, but just to remind ourselves again, the law silenced everyone before God. Two, it was not in play to justify us before God. And three, last week, he says something even more prompting. Last week in Romans 5.20, I want you to see it. The law came in so that that transgressions would increase. But where sin increased, gray abounded all the more. If Paul ends his letter in the next verse, Paul knows that there are those within the church would ask, well, if our sin merely increases God's grace, let us help him out and continue on sinning so that his grace would be more exalted. We actually can aid God in his glory by participating in sin. He's prompted the question. And Paul, as in light of hearing this, look at Romans 6, verse 2, may it never be. And here's the challenge, Reliance. And we need to be very thoughtful on this. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us. Something happens. Something ought to happen. The moment you put your hope in Christ. Scriptures at large, whether it's Peter or Paul or James or the author of Hebrews, pleads not with those within the world to question their salvation. They write at times to the church, if you are saved, you should automatically recognize a transformation within the individual. Paul will write in Colossians, examine yourself, Hebrews. Be fearful that you are hardened your heart, being given the opportunity. Don't be like what Jesus said, receive the gospel with joy, but as trouble comes to fall away. Paul is now going to labor to write to the Christian to say, are these things in you? Have you been transformed? Is the relationship that you have now with sin different? It is absurd for one to cling to Christ and to live in sin. Okay? Asterisk. I'm going to go to my first point here in a second. Please let me preach the text. Um, chapter 7 and chapter 8, I know it's good. today's message is going to prop a whole bunch of questions. Paul will answer them, so, but it's down the road. And so let me preach this text and also understand what Paul perceives us. What happens when you say Christ is my Savior by faith? What happens with our relationship with sin? Okay, he asks the question, verse 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
I think point one, to understand the nature of his question, it's helpful for the reader to remember who we were once before grace. Before we understand his argument, we of those who have recognized the transformational work in Christ, we ought to remember who we were before grace. And I've mentioned this already. We were once helpless, godless, sinners, enemies of God. If I were to look before grace, if I were to look at Romans 5, 6, under the power of sin, which all people are, whether Jew or Gentile, we were helpless. Meaning, unable to live in a way to please God or make right decisions. Two, under the power of sin, we were godless. Lived our lives purposely and contrary to the very nature of God. Three, Romans 5.8, under the power of sin, we were sinners. Yet, in that position, Christ died for us. Four, under the power of sin, we were enemies of God. We were reconciled even in that position to God through the death of his son. Why in the world would one who is saved deviate back to that position? If we recognize who we once were, the absurdity of the question is pointed because we would be going from a position where we once opposed God, now having a right relationship with God, having a right relationship with God, the absurdity of the question exists because why would you want to go back to the previous condition that you once were in? In that, what we recognize when we say we are in a relationship with God, we recognize who we once were. Before I go to point two, I have to make this point. Look at verse one again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue? And the preposition here is important. In sin. So that grace may increase. Are we to continue in sin? All of us before Christ, before grace, were under sin. We lived in sin. We ruled, were ruled by that authority, that power. And we have been saved from that. Let me use an illustration. When we're under sin, that is our nature as sinners, godless, helpless enemies of God. A bird is a bird and cannot act contrary to its nature. He's positioned under his kind. In fact, if you were to attempt to try to make a bird a mole, it would fight with every fiber within itself to live underground because it's not made for underground. It's made to fly within the skies. This is how we understand our relationship with God. To be a sinner, to be helpless. We are not of the nature to be able to glorify God because our nature is at odds with God. I know from experience, a cat is a cat. 
Most of my discipline as a child was related to my treatment of cats. <laughs> and I don't know why we had them. A cat is... <laughs> still don't, but a cat is a cat. Don't judge me. I was a sinner. And cannot act contrary to its nature. Cats don't want to be fish. And if you've ever seen a cat placed in the water, what does it do? Its very nature pleads for land. And they will rage, literally, from the innermost parts, attempting any attempts to make them a fish. My point is this. What shall then we say? Are we to continue, go back to our previous nature? Our previous nature opposed God. So this is an absurd question. And he wants to ask this question to make a point. For those of us who know who we are in Christ, there is a transformation that's happened. The power of the gospel is so profound because of the one we've hoped in has a, an ability to train, no, train, change the very nature of a creature, right? Look at Romans chapter 5. This is not going to be on your screen, I don't think. But Abraham hoped in God. Why? Because he is able to give life to the dead. That is us. That is our nature. And he can call into being that which does not exist. God has the power to transform that which opposes him into a right relationship with him. By the work of Christ, which Christ has accomplished. So before grace, we ought to recognize who we were. And as a result of knowing who we are through the obedience of Christ, we see that the unrighteous are made righteous. Through the righteousness of Christ, the transgression that we have placed before God in us, God through Christ put all the transgressions of humanity upon him so that we might have access to God. Through the sacrifice of Christ, this is what Romans 1 through 5 has taught us, the sinner transfers from death into life. Totally new nature. And we ought to expect then, as a result of this new nature, a new pattern of life. Alright, that's point one. And as a result of this, we recognize that Christians do not continue in sin because we're not under it anymore, right? Through Adam, sin entered the world, but through Christ, life. And we once were under Adam and under sin, but under Christ, something else has changed. So what is our relationship now to sin? And this is what Paul will teach us, point two. By grace, we know these things as our relationship to Christ. May it never be. That, it's interesting, he rebukes himself, right? Or he kind of, he doesn't rebuke, he rebukes the idea that anyone would think, oh, I'm saved, now I can go free and live however I want. No, that's, that's not possible. Birds are made for the skies, fish for the waters, the cats for the land, Christians, those who are redeemed in right relationship with God. And he's going to emphasize this in three different ways through three different illustrations. And the first one he's going to bring before us is baptism. Do you not know what happened 
when you put your hope in Christ. Look at Romans 6, 3 through 4 with me. Or do you not know? Like, so Christians are supposed to know something. Like, when Jesus talks about the parable, those who understand, those who know, bear fruit. You just don't wander into the gospel by accident. Right? There's a transforming work of understanding it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. First illustration. I come from a tradition that maybe has done error in some regards to making baptism more of a form. And that's all it is, is that it's just an expression of one's faith, dipped up, they're done. You've done what's required. Paul will take the issue of baptism to say, no, something when someone gets baptized is signifying an actual event and relationship with Christ. It's not merely just a symbolic example. There is something powerful being put on display that, look at verse 3, all of us who are in Christ have experienced. As a result of this, we recognize baptism to teach this when we perform it and when we watch people observe it and practice it. Paul's illustration makes these things, reminds us of these things. Public baptism, it, it's the opportunity for an individual to profess one Lord, Jesus Christ and Him alone. Two, public uh, public, uh, excuse me, baptism is the public profession of one's new obedience to Christ. Romans 1 through 5, I used to live for myself. My flesh, my lust, my passions guided the decisions how I live life. As a result of knowing Christ and the transforming work and the power of the gospel, I have a joy to pursue His way of living, His standard. In a public baptism, we demonstrate these things to be true. Baptism, number three, is the public profession of one's hope in Christ. It's death and resurrection. So much is happening when we see somebody walk into the water and take a public position and saying that they hope in Christ. The world has many things to offer, but Christ in Christ alone is my hope. Four, baptism signifies a real cleansing and washing away of sin. There is a new relationship that we recognize with Christ and sin. There's something has changed. And as a result of His work, we have been cleansed from our sins. And five and finally, baptism marks the profession that we are marking our life and walking in a new beginning. Paul says, when we get baptized, something has happened. Really and totally within the individual. Christ's death becomes our death. His profession has become now our profession. His way of living becomes our way of living. But more than that, the term baptism 
carries the idea of death altogether. And let me explain this. Luke 12, verse 50. When Jesus saw himself going to Jerusalem, he referred to his death as baptism. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus knew death would accomplish something. Mark 10, 38, you remember the disciples like, hey, can I sit on your right, on your left? And Jesus says, and he said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism with which I am about to be baptized? Baptism symbolizes death. Not just in form, but in reality. So when a Christian makes a public profession of their faith, they are saying, I'm dead. My life under sin is done. And therefore, my new way of living has a new relationship to Christ and God and to sin. Two, I'm trying to build the argument here. You know, stick with me as we build our theology. It leads us to something. If you understand when Jesus begins his ministry, John the Baptist as well, they would say things like, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Why would they talk in terms like that? Well, there are two kingdoms. Kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And for those who have received a relationship with God, an invitation to God's kingdom, they recognize that there is a relationship that's now changed between the two kingdoms. And by participating in the kingdom of God, to live under the previous kingdom is sinful. And this is why Paul can say, dead men do not live in sin, because Christians are dead to sin. This is what he's trying to argue. Two, we're united with him. This is a second illustration, 5 through 7. If you read through this with me, you're going to notice how important it is for Paul to recognize for Christians that you're dead. It's, it's everywhere. The term death. For if we have become united with Christ, with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6 Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, our old position under sin was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Please understand. Paul is not arguing that we don't sin. He is arguing that you're free from its domain. Best way I guess I can illustrate it is this. It when, and this is where a Christian ought to examine themselves always and continually. When I do sin, do I grieve? Does the Spirit of God call me more into His likeness? How terrifying it is. For one who thinks he's saved to walk in sin and never feel the pull of the Holy Spirit that he is sinning. For to be under the realm of sin is to not be guilted by the kingdom of God. But to be empowered by God through the gospel. 
There is something that's been killed. As a result of that, we are free, free from its domain and to live in a new likeness. It's actually our desire now to please God. We actually enjoy it. Three, so I can save, save some time for our, for our conclusion. The third point is, is very specific and he couldn't make it any more clear. Our relationship with sin has been killed because we have died with Christ. Read with me verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never, look at all this layering, die again. To die from under sin, to enter into the kingdom of God because of his death and his resurrection, he never dies again. Death no longer is a master over him. Verse 10. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Something happened when Christ died for our sin. When we put our hope in him, we are not merely following an example of Christ. God sees it in us by faith that what Christ accomplished is our accomplishment. We die with Christ. This is what the worship team read earlier. It should be very familiar to us, as in Galatians 2.20. It's this is not just some idea. This is reality for the Christian. I have been crucified with Christ. My, my relationship under sin has been killed. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Okay, that's a lot of theology. He's trying to say it three times. A Christian's relationship to sin, under sin, is changed powerfully as a result of faith in what he has accomplished. His death to sin becomes our victory as a result of his resurrection. We have been crucified with him. We are of an entire new nature. And it is absurd to think that a caterpillar that once transformed into a butterfly would want to go back to the form of a caterpillar. When we understand the power of God to be free, really and totally free, to live for God is to be transformed. That we look back to our previous position and say, I would never want to be in that position again. Because I know to live with Christ is to enjoy Him forever. Christ Himself, who died and was resurrected, what has Christ done after His resurrection? He lives to God, the Father. Why? Because that is his great delight. For those of us who have been transformed in Christ, what it ought be our delight to live for God. We actually believe. 
looking at things on the internet that only fuel our lust is destructive. And that life is abandoning our sin. We actually believe that the fellowship of the saints increases our love for God. Whereas before, under sin, I lived for myself. And I associated with people who would only prop myself up. And if you didn't continue to do that, I would find new friends. But in Christ, everything has changed. I don't no longer live for myself. I perceive the things of God. And as I perceive the things of God, I see them as my benefit. Not obligation, but my benefit. Paul's going to get to this. You're not going to have it on the screen, but you'll see it if you were to jump down your Bibles to verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were not ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. To live under sin is death. To live for yourself, the ultimate result is your demise. To be freed from that and to live for God is life. So Paul concludes in verse 11. This. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus, in Christ Jesus. If we don't see our relationship with sin changed after the gospel's been received, we ought to plead with God that we be transformed. I pray that you would hate it, hate the sin of which you once loved. And to see the joy of pursuing Christ. And to flee from sin. And to recognize the power of God in your life. And I have sat and I've seen so many hands go up. I've seen witness baptisms. And as they walk away, I wonder. Only God knows. Are they transformed? Is the power of God, do they know and do they understand that God has freed them to live for him and not for themselves? Which leads me to my response. Point three, our response. There are two kingdoms. And under sin, and I'll just use general terms, the world handles sin sinfully. It holds to this idea of righteousness because God has put it there. But the means by which they think they can get there is through their nature, through sin. It does us no good as Christians to not or to withhold the means by which frees them from that nature and not preach Christ to them crucified, who has the power to change the nature. Without Christ's transforming work, their lives will remain helplessly lost. It will be like trying to tell the world, you're a mole, but be a bird. And they will live their lives attempting and being frustrated that they never could. We must preach the gospel not with a, with a ton of, tongue of rebuke, but with a plea. Be reconciled to God. 
And if you understand these two kingdom principles, it changes the way that you relate to both. What's shocking, I think, for many of us in this last year is we've seen many sins crop up in our society as we talk towards each other without the right categories. We can expect the world to have sin in it. That's its nature. But it ought to shock us when we find it in the church. For in the church, we ought not to live in what? Under sin. And as the church lives with one another, we ought to reconcile with one another because of the one who has transformed us. And we ought to pursue one another with this mindset. Which leads me that if we understand these two kingdoms, I've come to this conclusion. By grace, we ought to recognize in ourselves the responsibility we have towards one another. I hope you've seen it. Chapter 5 and verse 6, or chapter 6. Verse 1, are we, or shall we, how shall we, verse 2, verse 3, all of us, verse 11, consider yourselves. There's this corporateness within our church, the church as a whole, that's supposed to live free from under sin. And often within our culture, we want to individualize the Christian journey. And that is not how Paul has laid it out before us. The pursuit of Christ and becoming more in his likeness is a journey together. And that we work these things out together. And so I want to conclude this with Colossians 3, 2 through 9, 12 through 17. This is a highly theological topic, I understand. You don't get to chapter 12, the good stuff, without the theology. When I read here now, you're going to say, I only provide this now to see the result of this, if we hold these things true. And so to another church, he says the exact same thing, but provides the response of how we live in life. Colossians 3, 2 through 9. Set your mind on these things above, not on the things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil desires, dead to greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come about upon the sons of disobedience. Romans 1 through 5. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. As a result of the gospel, there ought to be transformation and an understanding to our relationship to sin. We don't live under it anymore. We flee from it. We pursue Christ, verse 12. So as all those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, how we ought to live, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, 
and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The only way this can happen is if our nature has been changed. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with a thankfulness in your hearts, because this is our nature to our God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we continue on to recognize our relationship to sin, that we recognize it's changed. And that as we are tempted within the midst of this world, we are dead to its power. Because of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to see life from fleeing anger, fleeing lust, fleeing unforgiveness, fleeing whatever sin that which would oppose you. For it is our benefit to cling to your standards, and it is for our joy and our benefit when we follow them. In Jesus' name, let's stand and worship.